Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. That's the one and only Mr. Max Williams. But he's not on a Zoom call, is he? No. No, you were like pointing to him, like in corporeally, you know? Yes, that's right. Your your pals, uh, your ridiculous historians, Noel Brown, Max Williams, uh, me, the one they call Ben, we are together physically in a room, and it's something that we can all appreciate now mm-hmm. after all those Zoom calls or Microsoft Team calls or Riverside calls. Yeah, it's kind of funny how it's become like a, a novelty almost, you know, yeah. being in a room with people. Mm-hmm. But I think it's starting to ease up and become a little more normalized. You I'd know? love this to be a regular thing. I mean, we got the mood lighting here. You know, we had a vibe. We were just hanging out earlier because we're the only people in the office. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was especially nice when I was uh, recording some VO in a separate studio and Ben just kicked in the door like, Max, I need you right now. Yeah, yeah, I hope that makes it into the ephemeral episode you're working on. Were you hulking out, Ben? It's <laughs> my secret, Noel. I'm always kind of hulking out. Uh, we have a, oh, man. So, spoiler alert, we're all excited here because we have a long weekend coming up. We're recording on a Friday. The reason we have a long weekend is because we get the day off for President's Day. Yeah, and I sort of, like, did a little 
Oh. <laughs> like, is that like, is it George Washington's birthday? Is that what President's Day is? It's between Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, I believe. I believe, or maybe there's a third one also, but I know it's like a date between all theirs. I don't think it's anyone's per- birthday in particular. Which one was the one that definitely didn't cut down the cherry tree? Uh, George Washington. Okay, cool, yeah. cool, cool, cool. Uh, and probably did at some point deceive or lie to people. But I, I thought President's Day was officially George Washington's birthday. I thought so too, but what do I know? Well, you know, happy birthday, George, if you're hearing this, uh, if you're hearing this later. Uh, today, we are going to talk about something that is near and dear to my heart, at least, I suspect, all three of us. And that is New York's Chinatown. It's a really cool place. Mulberry Street, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a really cool divide between Chinatown and like Little Italy. That's interesting how they can kind of coexist. But man, you can get some really great, cheap, incredible food in Chinatown. You also get some really pricey food in Chinatown. But like there's I, can't, I wish I could remember the name of the place. There's a place in particular that I just love that's like absurdly cheap, but it's this like northern Chinese cuisine, mm. I believe, where it's the noodles, lamb, lamb, and, lamb and the noodles are all very long. There's no separation. It's just yeah. like one big giant noodle, <laughs> right. you know, you have to kind of like cut it with your teeth, mm. uh, a.k.a. chew it, I guess. Yeah, uh, masticate mm-hmm. if we want to sound fancy. Yeah, I was, you know, I was telling you guys, uh, I was just in New York recently for Lunar New Year, and I was all over Chinatown. They're probably sick of me by this point. Isn't that where they do the thing with, like, the dragons and stuff and they bang the pots and pans? There are all kinds of cool Mm -hmm. celebrations, yeah. But this, the Chinatown that you will see today, if you travel to the Chinatown in Manhattan, it's come a long way. It's it's very different uh, in comparison to the earlier Chinatown. But it still maintains a really cool cultural identity, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's all these, like, very interesting, authentic little hole-in-the-wall spots that you can check out. There's obviously lots of legacy kind of grandfathered businesses that probably wouldn't exist if they didn't have rent control or, like, owned the buildings from, like, generations back. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one thing that's neat about New York. It's still parts of it maintain that very authentic cultural atmosphere. And this, ooh, I love that you said that because this goes into one of the key parts of today's story, the idea of authenticity Mm -hmm. versus performance. So uh, this is a true story, folks, and it may be, um, you know, you may be offended when you hear it. We certainly were not impressed with some of the people in this story, but travel back with us to the early 20th century, and let's say you are, you've got some friends or family coming in from out of town, and you're doing pretty well. You're up middle class, mm-hmm. you know, like your your brother, your sister, and their family's coming, and they're like, oh, we're in New York, what do we, what should we do for fun? And you're like, I have an idea. Yeah. <laughs> let's go see how the other half live. Let's go watch poor people for fun. That's a real thing. Uh-huh. I don't know if anyone's, I mean, I, I've, I've heard this term for years, and, and, and like many terms like this, you sometimes don't even think to question the etymology of it, but the term slumming, mm-hmm. turns out it has a very rich, problematic cult past. Um, you know, when people say Are you, you're slumming, it sort of implies that you're hanging out beneath your station or something, mm-hmm. like for a lark, kind of. That's exactly what it means. And it turns out that the idea of slumming started with something called slum tourism. Which feels kind of inhumane, doesn't it? I, and you're, you're spot on. If you go to the Oxford English Dictionary, you'll see that slumming was added to the big canonical list of spoken English in the 1860s. And it means just what you described, Noel, to go into or frequent slums for discreditable purposes, to saunter about 
with a suspicion, perhaps, of immoral pursuits. Sure. And the, yeah, but we're t- what we're talking about today is an even more weirdly sanitized version of that. Not You're not necessarily seeking the true immoral pursuits. You're just hoping to catch a glimpse of it. You know, again, for like your own amusement. Chills and thrills at the next cocktail soiree, you can say, you know, uh, Rutherford and I actually did go to Chinatown. <laughs> And there was a bit of violence about. A bit of a melee. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we, so we consider ourselves somewhat authorities. But yeah, this idea was not, nor, uh, not originally a U.S. creation. It came from well-to-do people in London who, since the 1840s, were like, do you know what we should do? We should go see those rapscallions, ne'er-do-wells at the East End. Oh, what a lock. What a lock it would be. <laughs> Sorry, I, I just got to do the, I love the uh, upper-class titter is what I call that. <laughs> there it yeah. is. I love that. I, I like picturing that character is in all these scenes. It's just in the Interchangeable. Back. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It does become kind of a case of parallel thinking, though, because the uh, the practical knowledge here is not necessarily that New Yorkers were copying what was going on in London. It's just sort of like a weird, gross facet of human nature to want to do weird stuff like this, right? Yeah, and was this good for the people who actually did have to live in these slums, you know, and spend their days there working? Well, unfortunately, according to multiple articles for everything from Atlas Obscura to National Geographic and the New York Times, apparently it didn't help them out a lot. Like maybe someone would say, uh, I was so moved by how bad things looked in the tenements that I think I can lobby my political friends to do something about it. But um, and there were also things, okay, I'm going somewhere with this. Mm-hmm. You remember how during the pandemic there was this big stink when a bunch of celebrities made a video uh, I think they were singing. It was like a We Are Believe. the World kind of situation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they were singing Belief and uh, talking about how difficult uh, it was to live in their mansions during the pandemic. And every- It must be so hard for you, yeah, Schwarzenegger. Tough. Right, yeah. right. Poor guy, poor guy. As well-intentioned as that was, a lot of people found it offensive because they said, you know, we're out of work. I know someone who died. Your little Instagram video is not helping. I'm in danger of being ejected from my apartment. Exactly. Exactly, dude. So there there was something similar that happened with some of these uh, slum tourism initiatives. There were flower charities. So people would go to these really poor parts of town and they would give flowers to people who had terrible lives. Maybe like give them money instead or like food or something. Right. What are they going to do with the flowers? Yeah, give the, give them access to health care and education. It's to show we care. <sighs> the Times said, What a pleasure it must be to a sufferer imprisoned in one of these tenements to receive a flower with its color and its green leaves and stems. Wait, are they being serious or still, are they I being still, ironic? I still don't know. I can't really tell. <laughs> I hope ironic, but I think serious. Yeah. Yeah. Also, guys, I want to jump back in. I said believe. It's actually imagine, but I don't know. Those kind of it's sound imagine. the same to me. Yeah. Imagine, believe, potato, clamato. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Just so. So the American version, I I like what you said about parallel thinking, because the American version probably started in Manhattan. And we found uh, we found a guy who's quoted pretty often in this professor, Chad Heap, who is an American studies professor at George Washington University. 
He says, it's not clear that New Yorkers were copying things they read about or heard about from London. While slumming manifested itself across the American landscape, New York and Chicago were the preeminent places. If you want to go, it's like if you want to go gamble in the U.S., you want to go to Vegas, you want to do some slum tourism, you're going to the Big Apple or Chicago. Yeah, I, lo- I love this guy's name, Chad Heap. What a, what a great name for someone uh, exploring, you know, this, oh, yeah. the heap, you know, the, the, the trash heap of human civilization. <laughs> I mean... Nomin of determinism, yeah, right? <laughs> in, indeed. Uh, he wrote a book called Slumming Sexual and Racial Encounters in American Nightlife, 1885 to 1940. We'll get to the kind of silver lining of all this, how it did in some small way open up kind of more progressive thinking around other cultures and, yeah. you know, the idea of uh, people less fortunate or whatever. And also, again, a lot of these people that were living in these slums were disenfranchised, not only because of their race, because of sexuality. You know, there were a lot of gay folks that were not allowed to exist within polite society, mm-hmm. and they were sort of relegated to these fringes and kind of became, oh, look, mommy, a gay, you know? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, they, they would be othered, exoticized, uh, but they were still wildly marginalized and disenfranchised, you shouldn't treat people like zoo exhibits. Nope. Don't think that's a hot take. Yeah. And uh, this also goes hand in hand with another episode we did quite a while back about just generally this weird racist and exoticization of Chinatown and Chinese people in New York and the idea of these chop suey houses that became kind of these Americanized, sanitized versions of like real Chinese cuisine. Um, It was a way to make money, but it was also a way to like make it palatable, you know, Mm -hmm. for Americans in in not a pandery way, but in Mm -hmm. like this is what it's going to take for us to like survive and and make money. And um, it's very, very interesting. It's it's a good episode, I think, if you want to go back and check that out. It gives a little more um, context to some of the things we're going to talk about today. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And they're not entirely pleasant, but they are stories that do need to be told. So, Uh, You can see the popularity of slum tourism. You can study it in the media of the day, like newspapers such as the New York Times would love to talk about how this was a fashionable London mania and slumming parties were going to be the rage in winter in New York. (laughs) Like a like a tour, like a guided tour. Oh, let's watch them freeze, shall we? (laughs) It's like it's terrible. Oh, no, it's fine. We're giving everyone a flower. Mm-hmm. So if if you stitch enough of them together, you can make a blanket. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Terrible. Uh, so the neighborhood. So what neighborhoods would they go to? Uh, Lower East Side was a big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lower East Side tenements. Uh, also Harlem. Mm-hmm. And also for our purposes today, Chinatown. And the weirdest thing is, imagine this, if you've ever lived in an apartment. Imagine if someone busted into your house and then looked around and told you you were an inspiration and then left a flower and then just beat me here, Max. Fucked off. Mm -hmm. You can't press charges. These are well-to-do people in the city. You know, what are are you going to... Historically, people who are financially disadvantaged get... Not the best treatment from police. Mm, no. Um, and, and to be fair, I don't think anyone was kicking down any doors. I think it was more like peeking in windows and things like yeah, that. Super were, creepy, but uh, yeah. maybe not quite as extreme as you're saying. But here's the kicker. It became 
a known thing that this was very popular and people were expecting a certain kind of uh, experience, right? Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. Big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. They would not be happy if they didn't see, you know, a crime being committed or like a sex worker being menaced by some sort of pimp, you know, Mm -hmm. like, so what happens? Yeah. Like, imagine I go back to that, that horrible zoo comparison or a conservation wildlife thing. Like, imagine you're on one of those trips or you're like on a whale watching thing. And then you say, this is malarkey. I can't believe I spent all afternoon in Harlem, and I didn't see one crime, I want my money back. <laughs> so these these scenarios started to become staged. Yes, they did. To an alarmingly theatrical degree. Yes, yeah. A lot of what people saw was really a, like day in the life of people who lived in these areas, but some residents saw an opportunity and this cottage industry arose where they said, okay, we're going to make sure we keep people here, keep them interested, and that they keep spending money. Uh, A lot of people were unethical in this whole industry. Like, I think we should mention part of, like, one of the grifts that slum tourists would do is they'd pretend to be charity workers and not actually help people. Anyway, this is the interesting part. They, They were like, okay, these rich very out-of-touch folks want to see scandal. They want to see something that reinforces the rampant sexual and racial stereotypes. Well, and they're already coming into our little bubble. I mean, let's let's not forget these areas rose up out of necessity because these people were marginalized and treated very poorly. So they kind of had to band together and create their own, you know, societies kind of like mm-hmm. in within the larger society. So to have all these outsiders just kind of traipsing through willy nilly and gawking uh, is offensive, patently offensive. So, you know, why not take advantage of it and, and make a buck? Yeah. And the way you would make a buck is to open a whoosh, whoosh, authentic bar or restaurant and it would stay open way later than it would if it were just for 
normal people in the neighborhood. They've got to get up early, go to work. So things are going to close around dinner time, right? Uh, or people are going to eat at home because you can't afford a ton of stuff in restaurants. So they made these fake authentic things. And, and uh, Dr. Heap, Professor Heap says a lot of these, especially in Chinatown, weren't even really owned by Chinese Americans or Chinese immigrants. That's right. And again, we, we mentioned the um, very close proximity of Little Italy to Chinatown. So there was, uh, you know, money to be made from folks that were in that adjacent community. So, yeah, these chop suey houses that were kind of, it's, I think he is who described it as yeah. bastardized Cantonese cooking. You know, mm-hmm. it was something that really catered to these sort of, you know, maybe somewhat adventurous eaters, but also wasn't nearly the real deal as far as like what actual Cantonese cooking would have been. Um, It was palatable enough for them to try it. And it actually became wildly popular. We talk talk about that in the uh, the other episode more than we will today. But uh, it spread, you know, like wildfire. Um, But exactly in the same way that a lot of Americanized Chinese joints today aren't authentic at all. And a lot of those dishes, like I believe like General Tso chicken, right. very much an American creation in the same way that a lot of Indian dishes in the UK are very much um, English creations. Right, right. Yeah, there are fantastic videos you can watch. I think they're still up on YouTube of people who actually are from China or grew up in China trying American Chinese food for the first time. And it's not to say they automatically hate it or anything. They're just like, what is this supposed to be? It reminds me of the character that Eugene Levy plays in, I believe it's no, is it best to show? No, he's a travel agent, but he's never left the country. Oh, yeah, yeah I think yeah. it's waiting for Guffman, but they're at dinner, and he's like, you know, I went to, to China, and the food there, it's just not as good. They don't make a sauce as, as, as sweet and tangy as they do over here. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what happened. And so these slummers, when I say slummers, we're talking about the um, slum tourists. They would get fixers or guides, or they would join organized groups. A slum Sherpa. You know? Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, yes. Uh, and these fixers, these uh, guides, would have the would already have a plan or an itinerary, and they would take them to like the specialty restaurants. They also took them to bars and brothels. That were especially for slummers. They were accustomed to receiving that type of clientele because, you know, let's let's get into like opium dens. You know, that was very much a thing. There were these particular types of bar kind of situations where people were smoking opium. But you wouldn't if you're a proprietor of a place like that, you don't want some looky loo popping in just to like gawk at, you know, these like opium addicts that are all like passed out on the floor. You would be resentful of that, especially if they weren't like dropping down some cash to like, you know, get stoned out of their gourds. Exactly. And out of towners could get duped or ripped off with this. Uh, There's a quote from James Clarence Harvey in 1905. He was a poet and he said, slumming usually means paying a price to see others do things you wouldn't do yourself for the world and which perhaps they wouldn't do except for the price you pay. Mm. So that's from that Alice Obscure article, yeah, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. Slumming Chinatown, New York history and fake opium dens. You know, and also let's not forget, if you were really, truly experiencing, you know, the real deal and you were like one of these rich people, you would be a target. You'd be a mark. Yeah. So you needed to work in, you know, groups that would ensure your safety. In the same way, like when you go on a safari in Africa, 
you you're, you're behind some glass and like a jeep, you know, like and then people are like making sure that you're not going to get mauled by a lion. The same is true here because you don't have experience on the savannah. That's the whole point, <laughs> right. you know. You're inexperienced and like very green, and someone's kind of giving you the tour because they know a what you want to see. They want to mm-hmm. give you that authentic experience that you're paying for, and b they want to make sure that you don't get murdered or mugged so that you can pay. Bad for business. Bad and, for yeah, business. you get to get a rep. If like, oh, this slum tourist, like people, you know, several people they went in and they never came out. You know. Yeah, and one of the big things, one of the breakout stars of these visits in this faux lifestyle that was being portrayed to people was the idea of the opium den. And the opium den as a concept was sold to the slum tourist as though it were the central focus of life for Chinese immigrants and Chinese Americans in New York. It'd be like, everybody hangs out at the opium den. That's where you get the real slice of life, which was patently untrue. Because you know who hangs out at opium dens? People who sell or consume opium. Yeah. That's why it's in the name. They're not like, I'm not an opium guy, but the Fanta here is top notch. No. Mm -mm. They also didn't have Fanta back then. I don't think. Fanta, wasn't that like a... World War II invention yes. because it was like the version of Coke that they could make in Germany using apple scraps. It wasn't even originally like an orange drink. And anyway, we've talked about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, I, don't, I'm, I do want to chime in. There are some people in this world who will get offended if you call it Fanta. They say it is Fanta. Fanta. Good say. Wanna Fanta. Fanta don't you wanna? Okay. Yeah. I guess it's it will not, find, it's, yeah. it's not Wanna Fanta. Wanna right. Fanta. It's, wa- it's Wanna Fanta. I bet Fanta. it is somewhere yeah. in the upper Midwest. Hey, you wearing a Fanta? Yeah, yeah. A little bit farther <laughs> north than where I'm from. Yeah, that's, it's wearing a Fanta probably. <laughs> so. It's like wearing a pop Fanta. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So good save. Good save, Max. Um, So this opium thing, the, the opium den image, um, it takes off. And there was one fake opium den that got very, very popular. It was owned by a guy named Chuck Connors. He called himself the mayor of Chinatown. He was not the mayor. Nope. <laughs> yeah, usually when people give themselves titles like that, there's some uh, weird megalomania at play in there. Mm-hmm. Unless, they're, unless they're Emperor Norton, first of his name. That guy was cool. <laughs> that guy was cool. <laughs> I think we all want to hang out with him. But yeah, yeah, so this guy would take out celebrities and uh, titans of industry and show them around. They have slum tourism. And he was famous because he wrote a book called Bowery Life where he talks about, I don't know, it's like talking about this fantasy of of a life that he probably didn't really live. And he took his, when he took his tours, there's tour groups, he would take them first to a restaurant and then he would take them to the Chinese theater. Then he would take them to a temple on Mott Street. And uh, then he would take them to what the tourists thought was an opium den. And they would see these people of Chinese lineage uh, hanging out, look, frankly, looking really hot. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it's opium. Right. But it was all an elaborate ruse, you know? I mean, these were actors lazing around, looking like they were absolutely stoned out of their minds, but it was all just a a total put-on. Exactly. And I love that you had pointed this out earlier. Think about it. An opium den, going to a real opium den, like, hello, I just want to see how everybody lives, and I've got some flowers for a few of you. Is this where y'all smoke the opium? (laughs) Exactly. And that's, there are real opium dens, but uh, if people 
just showed up there and they weren't smoking, why would they be allowed at all? You know what I mean? So everyone— Again, they would yeah. be treated as a mark. Exactly. If they really were to sought to wander into one of these places, they would either not be allowed in because it's clear— what someone is like, you know, either, you know, I mean, the, the look of someone who's really got the itch and wants to get stoned chase on opium, chase yeah. the dragon. That's a very particular clientele. And if you're like some well-scrubbed, you know, upper cruster, mm -hmm. chances are they don't even want you to know about this place. No. You know, chances are you'd go back and tell one of your friends and the police about it and then you'd get raided. Yeah, go back to Central Park. Jeez, buddy. Yeah, that's, okay, just to give you a sense of how extreme this is, there was one case of a Chinese actor who would play uh, would play somebody really strung out on opium, and they would take advantage of the um, the old racist like yellow peril belief that uh, that was we mentioned this in our earlier yeah, episode. the idea that these folks were like oversexed or something, right? Um, you know that that Chinese women were like you know promiscuous and all of this, mm -hmm. and they were only you know, good for being sex workers, just all of this crazy, uh, crazy racist stuff. and sexist and misogynist uh, way of thinking. Yeah, like, oh, if you're, it is in pure as driven snow white daughters begin uh, smoking opium, they'll be taken, you know. Uh, and so this guy who was, he, he was always seen with a white woman who was also really high and they were like just hanging out together uh, high on opium, but not only were they pretending, but they were also married. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was their job. Can you imagine? Okay, everybody's listening to this and thinking of their spouse or their loved one. Uh, we already know it can be tough to work with people that you're in a relationship with, right? What if you did that every day? Would that be awesome or would it be like, I don't know. I could see it being taxing. I, to me, it reminds me of like, you know, going into a haunted house, right? You know, <laughs> people that circulate through, they see the same thing over and over again because they're like cues, right? And these, this couple that you're talking about, they would repeat this bit over and over and over again <laughs> for the new looky-loos that were coming through. I like looky-loos. I don't know why I keep saying that, but it's fun to say. But it was a, it was an act, you know, it was very much like they were um, part of this production, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, so people buy this overwhelmingly, by the way, like the slum It's like, like wrestling, but, yeah. but, but people weren't wise to the fact that it was an act yet. Say, Whoa, we can't break kayfabe. That's something Jonathan Strickland would say. I don't right? know what kayfabe is. Oh, man. Is same as kayfed? Mm -hmm. uh, off air. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just because Max it, is, is it a sex smoke. thing? I don't know. No, no, no. no. It's um, it's the idea that no matter what, wrestling must present itself as being authentic. Yeah, it's just like you know, it's it's obviously scripted. You know how it's going to end, but how you get there is up to the actors and the fighters. Well, and that adds a, a, an air of authenticity to it. And I'm sure there was some yes anding going on with these <laughs> right. with these actors, too. <laughs> Honestly, probably just to make it less boring for them, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a dinner theater improv. Oh, great. They actually went to an improv theater disguised mm -hmm. as an opium yeah. den. Or it's like the way they do Curb Your Enthusiasm, for example, where they have these sketches of, you know what the end result of the scene needs to be, but how you get there is what makes it feel authentic and um, spontaneous. You know? Yeah. And when you know that, it makes Curb Your Enthusiasm worth a rewatch. I had suspected. A million percent. I had suspected when the first few seasons came out, I was like, are they improvising? Um, 
I was just amazed. Now when I watch it, I'm like, these guys are really good. I want to do stuff with them. You got to have the right people, though, to really pull mm-hmm. that off, you know, who can, like, play off of each other and keep the momentum going, mm-hmm. you know? Which the three of us, I think we would be a fun improv group. Yeah, it's possible. I, I would add some other folks. I'd uh, give it a go. Yeah, I want to. Like, I, you know, I'm ev- about every year or so, there will be a period where it's usually in the lead up to August where I will try to convince Noel and my good buddy, uh, our good buddy, Matt Frederick, to as a birthday present, because we all have August birthdays, Max. I don't know if you know that. Uh, as a birthday present, I always try to convince them to do some improv classes with me. And now you're going to be on that list, too. I don't think anybody will say yes, for the record. It's just a ritual for me to ask now. I mean, I'm going to say no right now. You're going to say no right now? That's not how you yes and. You're back uh, to being my uh, nemesis again, Max. <laughs> Let's see how long it lasts this time. Oh, boy. I can't stay mad at you. I know. We do this every day. Uh, but the... Um, Here's the thing. The show doesn't stop there. So people are saying, oh, wow, look at that. Opium's a real problem, you know? Uh, and then there are probably you know, a lot of people were um, going there to double down on their existing stereotypes or uh, prejudicial beliefs. So they would say the threat of miscegenation is real and it's due to opium, but the show's not over yet. Oh, that word, right? Miscegenate. Isn't yeah. that like mixing of races? Yes. I mean, that's a loaded, awful, gross term. Yes. Just to put that out. Yes. Yeah, it, it very much is. Um, so they would leave. And they'd say, that's crazy, my first opium den. And then a fight might break out on the street outside of the opium den. And it's like a real barnstormer of a fight. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. The big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. But it's like wrestling rules. It's like stomping and punching in the air. You know what I mean? It's like you'd have to have some like stage fighting chops to pull this stuff off and have it be believable. Because these people are, you know, they're a little clueless, but they're going to know if it's totally phony. It has to have that air of realism. It's like the chair explodes when it hits somebody. But if you look at it really closely, it's like half a second before it explodes. But you can't just (laughs) like, you know... like, like, not hit the person with the chair. It takes serious skills and timing to be able to pull this kind of stuff off. That is true. Yeah, we are not—this <clears throat> is not uh, 
a tangential ding on wrestlers. We're not disguising uh, a wrestler's smear piece because they're hard work and they, they're working hard and they can get injured. Seriously injured. Why yeah. do you think so many wrestlers go on to become quite solid screen actors? Like John Cena? John Cena's out. excellent in Peacemaker. Yeah, are you so, watching Peacemaker? So, do that opening uh, title sequence. It's my favorite. It's one of the best ever. It, it, it's like a, if you guys haven't seen it, you just watch the title sequence. It will it will pull you in. It's like a incredibly choreographed uh, dance number with all of the main characters in the show, and it is just a delight. Mm-hmm. Have you seen Peacemaker yet? Uh, not yet. It's on uh, my list. Just you are watch the opening title. Just I mean, watch I've, the opening. It's the Olympics. All I've been watching is curling, like all the time. What That's is the Olympics? Right. The curling. Is that no, you're with, my nemesis now. Does that have to do with like Greek mythology? I don't understand. Uh, it is based on the work of curling hair. Timothy Oliphant. Sweep the ice. <laughs> so, yeah. So, before we get curled out of the show, there's a fight. You walk out. You've just seen your first opium den. You may have visited what you thought was a brothel and a legit, you know, saloon. And then all of a sudden, right, uh, weirdly enough, right as your group walks out, some other person on the street. What are the chances, <laughs> exactly, Margaret? Exactly. Exactly. And um, you might see a standoff, you know, between these two gangs. And people had a lot of, there was a big fear culture because the newspaper tabloids love to report on like tong wars and mm-hmm. gang fights. and Which so, was a thing. I mean, that there was real, you know, I mean, oh, yeah. we're talking about also like uh, in the era of the, like the gangs of New York and stuff, you know, they're, you know, the, the five points and all of that. That was another area that was popular for slum tourism. Yes, 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 it is. And, or yes, it was, thankfully. And so people treated it like wrestling. They would all actually get kind of mad. I, I'm sure it's just, I love the haunted house example. I'm sure it's one of those things where, um, you know, let's say a couple goes out on this just terrible date and the girl is saying, I can't believe it. I, I thought we were almost going to get robbed. You got to wonder if there's a premium version of this, too, where they get to, like, have some participatory quality where oh, the yeah. man gets to save the oh, damsel gosh, from yeah. some would-be mugger and, make, and it makes him feel like a big man, you know, and little does he know that it was all phony you know right and it could have been something as simple as you walk out and all of a sudden you hear somebody screaming like ah and then someone's running after them with a hatchet there'd be and there'd be gunshots and you gotta wonder were they using blanks you know like what like how how far did this uh subterfuge extend you know we don't fully know and there were obviously probably different groups that were better at it than others, you know? There were the real premium ones. Like, <laughs> God, how come is it that if you hire this one slum tour group, you always get to see the craziest stuff happening and the other ones maybe a little more low-key, right? Yeah, you got to go with Fast Eddie. I have never seen, uh, I, I've never hung out with Fast Eddie and not seen a gang fight. Like, that's what they would recommend. And now the question becomes, like, people would leave disappointed if they didn't see these fights. Their expectations were there. But now the question becomes, no. Max, were any of these people in actual danger? No, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> I think that's the whole point, right? That there was a level of like a separation and, and protection that these people were getting, whether they knew it or not. And I think part of that has to do with the inherent naivety of thinking that you can just go into this like world, this underworld, and not be in danger, you know, it, they were just so clueless and uh, disconnected that they didn't even realize that, like, dude, if, you, if this is real, you probably would have been killed six oh. times over, you know? I mean, how often, I mean, were there people going on these things that were like, okay, this is 
Ben stage. This is. I think this, some probably were yeah, wise to it and okay with it. Even I'm, you I'm know? thinking of a Futurama scene. It's like early Futurama where they they're going, you know, to New York of yesteryear, and Fry's all like, "Oh, this is great!" And this guy comes up to them. And he's like, "Hey, give me your wallet." He's like, "Oh yeah, it's like I'm getting mugged." And the guy takes his wallet and just runs off. And he's like, oh, I actually got mugged. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think that probably happened. Um, because people were so disassociated from the realities of life in these communities. You might ask yourself, why are uh, why isn't this happening today? Well, the craze did eventually die out. San Francisco, I can't believe they had to make this law. San Francisco banned mockery of the poor. And they're like, all right, look, you have to be human at some point. And when the New York Times reported it, they didn't talk about like how worthwhile and egalitarian laws like that were. They said, and this is from an article in 1909, this is a heavy blow to Chinatown guides who have collected a fee of $2 each. The opium smokers, gamblers, blind paupers, singing children, and other curiosities. Singing children? Were all hired. Yeah, there's thrown in there the singing children and the blind beggars. I want to know more about the singing children. Are these like carolers? <laughs> like what? I don't understand. I guess it was unusual at Singing the time. for their supper kind of vibe. I don't know. What know? were they singing? Was it an Oliver Twist kind of situation? Yeah. Do they also do choreographed dance moves? I, oh, I want to know more. Yeah. And uh, I want to know more about the people who saw those children and then were just like, oh, <laughs> good luck with your life, young lad. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, this stuff gradually starts to die off after World War II. And Professor Heap says uh, he believes part of that is because urban nightlife in general was less and less popular immediately after the post-war. A lot of people were moving out to suburbs. This is the age uh, of the suburban explosion. And this meant that the people who would have been living in a city where they could consistently go uh, on slum tourism, we're now far removed from those places. But then he points to what I think is an even bigger thing, television. Because now you don't have to travel there. You can get your voyeurism by staying at home. And then um, you can vicariously experience that stuff. Also, there was, you know, there were there were moves to better people's lives in general in this country, uh, welfare, social housing, and that lasted about until the 80s, 1980s and 1990s, when state support for people started to go back on the decline uh, and slum tourism came back in the 1980s. I can't believe that. Uh, it had a more international flavor. Uh, you would see people going, not necessarily in New York or whatever, but in like India, South Africa, the favela in Brazil, mm -hmm. like they would go tour this stuff. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's, it, again, parallel thinking. Like, I don't think anyone had to be given this idea. It's just sort of like, you know, it's like the most dangerous game. Let's like hunt a poor man, you know, for our own amusement. I mean, it's just sort of some weird demonic thing that's in humans that they want to like exploit other humans and almost like revel in their uh, misfortune. Right, right. That is not me. And that means I am good, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's exactly it. Now, here we get to a thing that I think is worth us having a conversation about. I'm, I'm really interested to see what we all think. The, the resurgence of this stuff obviously sparked outrage with a lot of people. The opponents say it is a racist exercise and it is not helping these folks. But people who support it say this puts money into critically impoverished neighborhoods 
And it, yeah, of course, the tour operators make money, but the people who live there make money too. And there's an argument that it like raises awareness for the less fortunate right, you know, yeah. about the less fortunate. And there are some people that might learn of these situations from this kind of thing and then actually do something about it, not just give them flowers. Right. You know, you right. mentioned that at the very top of the show. And I think there's some merit to that. Uh, sometimes gross things can lead to positive things. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, no, that's a really good and optimistic point. I love that you made that point because I think it's something we should remember. And Professor Heap might agree with you a bit there because he says slumming as weird and othery as it is, uh, it promoted social mixing and it started reshaping the sexual and racial landscape, uh, his phrase, uh, in this really stratified society otherwise. I think there was a a mention earlier that we skipped. um, I think it was from Heap, but the idea that for some experiencing these marginalized communities, whether it be trans, um, LG, whatever, they wouldn't have called it out at the time. They would have said something way more problematic like cross-dressers. But the experiencing of that for some who maybe haven't fully found their identity in that department might actually be a positive thing where they'd be like, oh, this exists. And, and maybe this is me, you know, like that. there's something yeah. to that, I think, as well. Yeah. And then on some level, Direct interaction with people is going to be a lot different from reading a headline about a crime. You can put a face on it, and that face is not so different from you, you know? And that's why Heap says, in conclusion, that slumming, as much as we might think it's a terrible thing today, slumming was, in his opinion, somewhat positive in the context of the time. You know, because it's like literally a better than nothing situation. Mm-hmm. Which is often how, how these things go. You know, like I said, from gross things sometimes spring. Uh, you could almost call them like unintended positive outcomes. And so that brings us to a close today. Now, of course, we have to mention that the three of us love, love traveling. Uh, traveling is one of the things, Noel, you and I missed most uh, about the pandemic. and. There is no more profound experience or no more profound way to learn about the world around you than physically visiting Mm -hmm. and participating. But don't be condescending about it. Don't Mm -hmm. be a jerk. If you're a strange man in a strange land or a strange person in a strange land. I like strange man in a strange land because of the rhyme. If you're a strange man in a strange land, then embrace it and embrace it in a respectful way. You know what I mean? Don't. Like one thing that gets me in the modern day is you see, you'll see travelers from wealthy countries go to a place to help. Right. I'm leaning into these air quotes so hard. And their help is an Instagram picture of them with people. Which is basically just a way of big upping their own profile and looking like some sort of like social justice warrior, white savior thing, which is, I think, I think the tide has turned on that kind of thing where it's just like, you know, like the thing you were talking about earlier, the imagine or whatever. It's just not a good look. And I think for the most part, everyone realizes that. I mean, I use that jump in here. There's this thing circling around about this ad that played during the Super Bowl about like, oh, we donated $100,000 to this foundation and the ad itself cost $50 million to play. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we got to end on a positive. We, we, we did another episode earlier for stuff they don't want you to know about uh, radioactive cleanup and mm-hmm. the idea that the government, you know, would spend $2 billion to clean up 
poorly managed radioactive sites where they could have just done a better job in the first place. But instead, they now have to allocate $2 billion, but yet it's a tall order to, you know, pay for children's educations and health care and, you know, things that people need. People in general. Jeez. Well, this, I mean, but this is... Sorry we took it dark again. We were trying to silver lining it. We got it. Because we're going to head out for a weekend. We're going to have a great time. Yes. Right? There we go. Uh, we're not going to be slum tourists. Uh, we are also, you know, in our lives off air, we're, I think we're all pretty wholesome dudes. Uh, we also can't wait to learn more strange stories like this is stranger than fiction in my opinion it sounds kind of made up but it, it really happened um so well, it's yeah. something that i could see really taken to the nth degree by a very talented sci-fi type writer oh, you yeah. know what i mean yeah. like you know and we also remember we've done episodes in the past about human zoos remember that oh yeah gosh yeah that's we go taking it dark again no that's um, a true story but uh that is a true story but i also just want to reiterate we opened with this i want to say it at the end no I think it would be awesome if we could make in-person recording more of a regular thing. It does, it does feel nice. It does feel nice. What, it's a great way to end the week, too. Is, it, it's always nice being in a room with you, too. Except for you, Noel. Max. <laughs> well, especially a small room like this, where by the end of our recording, we can all kind of smell each other. Yeah. I mean, we like, all just kind of smelled the same by the end. Smells <laughs> like Boys Town is, is what uh, <laughs> uh, a colleague of ours, Christian Sager, used to always say that after, like, recording, marathon recording says, he says, it smells like Boys Town in here. Well... Uh, <laughs> Hope you're doing well if you're reading this, Christian. Christian's a fantastic author as well. He could he could probably write he something could do great a good with this. Great yeah. comic book writer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in addition to fiction, of course. Yeah. So we are going to call it a day so we can open this door, get some fresh air. I hope the weather is lovely in your neck of the global woods. Uh, and if you can, get a chance to go outside and venture. Thanks, as always, to Mr. Max Williams. Thanks to uh, Mr. Casey Pegram. Noel, I know we got other people to thank, mm-hmm. but I wanted to put you high on the list because this was really fun to hang It was always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks to you as well. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch-ch-ch-ch-ch- 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.